Welcome to Purpose Church. My name is Eric, and I just want to let you know we are so excited that you are joining us, our online community today as we study God's Word. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and as we jump into our study today on the book of Hebrews, we're going to see together how Jesus wants his church to think and how he wants us to act. Now, all year we've been in a long study called Jesus on Every Page where every Sunday we're looking at a different book of the Bible, discovering what Jesus has for us. Now, before we dive into Hebrews, there's this amazing moment in Jesus' ministry that will kind of set the tone for the rest of our time today. It's in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm raging. The disciples are freaking out, and then Jesus calms the storm. And the disciples are amazed. And then look at what Jesus said. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Jesus assumes that we are putting our faith somewhere. The question is, where? In other words, everyone has faith. Where is yours? And is the thing you are putting faith in strong enough to hold you up? But maybe a first important question to ask is, what does it even mean to have faith? To help me with this, I've invited my friends Claire and Nick. This is our high school pastor, Claire, and our junior high pastor, Nick. And, and Pastor Nick, I'm going to have you as the Jesus character, okay? Now, you both are, you know, holy people. You love the Lord. But Nick's just got the Jesus hair. He looks like Jesus from Chosen, so we're just going to roll with it. So here's what I want you to do. When asking the question, what is faith? Faith really is what you are putting your trust in. What you are relying on. So here's what I want you to do, Pastor Claire. I want you to hold on to those ropes. And Pastor Nick, I want you to hold on to her for dear life. Now, I know you're a junior high pastor and it might be funny to let her go. We're not doing that today, okay? So I want you to hold on tight. And Pastor Claire, I'm going to ask you to do something crazy. I want you to lean like all the way back, putting your life in his hands. Now, what you're seeing right now, this is faith. That Pastor Claire has made a decision that Nick is strong enough, capable enough to put her full trust in. But, but here's the problem. For a lot of us, we are putting our faith, not in something that can hold us up, but we're putting our faith in our money. We're putting our faith in where we live. We're putting our faith in our education. We're putting our faith in something as insignificant as a mic stand. Now, Pastor Claire, if I asked you right now to lean back, I could imagine, even though I'm your supervisor, you'd go, I'm sorry, this is where I draw the line because you're not willing to put your faith in something that can't hold you up. Which begs the question, what is it that you're putting your faith in? Can we give these a little round of applause from wherever you're watching or listening from? Pastor Claire, Pastor Nick, we so appreciate you. Well, before we jump into Hebrews and discover where we put our faith, let's look at the background of this book of the Bible. It was written between 63 to 64 AD, right before Roman Emperor Nero's persecution of Christians. The author is unknown. Early church father Origen, born in 184 AD, said only God knows certainly who wrote this letter. And most modern day scholars, they agree with Origen. 
The audience was Jewish Christians living in Rome who never saw Jesus but had believed in his death and resurrection yet were tempted to slip back into Judaism because of the persecution and hardships they had faced for being Christians and the very real potential of martyrdom, being murdered for their faith in Christ. The purpose of Hebrews, with threats of persecution, came the avoidance of evangelism and gathering to worship. Instead of sharing their faith strategically and boldly, they began to become fearful. Some scholars suggest that only 20 or so Christians were gathered in a house church in the city of Rome when the letter of Hebrews was first read. It's why New Testament theologian William L. Lane says this, Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. And maybe your world's falling apart today because you've put your, thing, your faith in things that can't hold you up. Maybe your world is falling apart because of circumstances outside of your control. Maybe as a Christian, you're finding yourself more alienated from your culture, your community, maybe even your family and friends. And there's a part of you that is beginning to put your faith in fear or in something else other than Jesus Christ. And you, like the first recipients of Hebrews, might be feeling a little bit of fear. And with that backdrop, listen to the opening words that the author of Hebrews chose to use, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to build confidence and courage in not just those first recipients, but you and me as well. Hebrews 1 verse 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, our first big idea is Christ's sacrifice shows us that God still speaks. The author of Hebrews is saying, God has always been a speaking God. That in the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the Psalms and Proverbs, through the law and the history, God was speaking to his people. But God did not stop speaking in the Old Testament. He continues to speak through Jesus and through the authors of the New Testament who point us to the perfect God Almighty, who is Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for you and for me. Now, the author of Hebrews mentions in these last days. Now, now sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, Eric, do you think we're in the last days? And I like to respond. I go, yeah, I think we're in the last days. And I think biblically, we've been in the last days since Jesus, that since these last days, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back again, but we know with certainty that Jesus will come back again. 
Well, then the author of Hebrews, he wants you and I to have a big picture of Jesus. And so he said, Jesus looks like God. He's the radiance because he is God. He is the exact representation. Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. In the next chapter, Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, the author says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The reason we can put our faith in Jesus Christ is because he's fully human. He understands everything we've gone through. He understands all of our temptations and struggles, but he's also fully God. He's the only one perfectly qualified which leads to our next big idea. Number two, Christ's sacrifice guarantees us complete salvation. Hebrews chapter seven, verses 23 to 27, they go like this. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Say that with me on the count of three. Save completely. One, two, three. Save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus perfectly, completely saves us when we come to him. Jesus forever took our sins away. And our sins can't return. They, they, they can't continue to enslave us unless we allow them to. You see, if you're in a relationship with God, one thing you're going to experience is he is going to frequently convict you of sin in your life. Why? Because he wants to save you completely, like every single part of you. And so whenever God convicts you of a sin, you recognize, oh man, I'm not following Jesus faithfully. Here's an area of my life where I'm being disobedient as God is revealing to me his standard through his word. When you have those moments where God convicts you, don't see it as, as God wanting you to feel guilt or shame or, or he's trying to convict you so that you feel bad. See it as an act of God's mercy and grace. You see, God convicts you and I so that we can repent and turn away from our sin and continue to put our faith and our trust in him. But Satan knows that. And so your enemy, Satan, what he'll want to do is he'll want to guilt you. He'll want to heap on all kinds of shame for sin in the past or sins that you're currently struggling with. You see, God convicts because he wants a better relationship with you. Satan guilts you because he wants to give you a reason to run away from God. Now, once you've repented and, and confessed your sins to God and Satan tries to guilt you, here's what you need to do. When Satan guilts you, you remind him that Jesus already paid for that sin. When Satan tries to throw your sin back in your face, you say, yeah, guess what? I did that. And Jesus already paid for it. 
You see, it, it's kind of like, have you ever been at a, at a basketball game where the winning team has a significant lead on the losing team and, and there'll be that moment where maybe the winning team is shooting a free throw and they miss it or, or they miss some kind of big play and the fans of the losing team will scream out at them. They'll, they'll make comments. They'll, they'll try to get in their head. And if the fans of the winning team, they usually respond with one word and it's this, scoreboard, scoreboard, right? What are they saying? They're saying, yeah, we made a mistake. Yeah, 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 we, we missed that play. We missed that free throw. But look at the scoreboard. Look who's winning. Friends, let me spiritualize that for a moment. If you and I had the kind of mindset that when we sin, we want to confess those things. We want to bring those things to God. And then Satan tries to guilt us. Let's just remind Satan. Let's say scoreboard. Let's say heavenly scoreboard. Gospel scoreboard. You know what the gospel scoreboard is? It's this. Jesus Christ is victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Because Jesus Christ saves completely. Number three. Christ's sacrifice saved is saving and will save us. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hold on. If a person is saved when they receive Christ, why does Hebrews say that Jesus will bring salvation? It's because in the New Testament, when the writers use the word salvation or saved, they usually use it in one of three unique ways. The first way is we have been saved. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Here Paul says that when you receive Christ, you are saved. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to prove it. You don't have to try to impress God. There's nothing you could do on your own to earn his forgiveness. It's a free gift to you that cost Jesus Christ everything. And he would do it all over again because he loves you that much. But the second way the New Testament used the word uses the word saved, is we are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, God's salvation continues to work itself in our lives. We are continuing to be saved from our sins. We are continuing to be sanctified, meaning made more like Jesus. And then the third way the New Testament uses the word saved is from Romans 13, 11. We will be saved. Similar to this Hebrews 9 passage. Romans 11, or 13, 11 says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
It's kind of like a little bit of what we talked about last Sunday. That Jesus Christ loves you so much that he's not just committed to the new you, but he's committed to renewing you. In other words, Jesus loves you so much that he saves you when you receive Christ and repent and choose to follow Jesus. He continues to work out that salvation in you. He continues to sanctify you and to transform you. And there is a coming salvation in heaven for all of eternity where all that we are hoping in will be actualized in Christ. You see, the good news is Jesus is coming back. I want to say it again. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when Jesus even said in the gospels, he didn't know when, we don't know when, but Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it won't be a letdown. And maybe there's, maybe one of the ways that Satan has you messing around with your life or, or dabbling in, in stuff that is leading you away, sins and temptations. Maybe one of the, the ways that Satan has you trapped up is he's got you convinced that heaven is going to be really boring. That life in Christ, even now, is really boring. And so you should do all the fun stuff now because eternity is going to be boring. That is not the picture that scripture paints. Scripture tells a story of heaven being perfect unity with God and with each other in the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be Good. It, it reminds me of uh, when I was in, in junior high, there was a, a, a Christmas Eve where our family was gathering together. And, and one of my family members thought that I would appreciate a rock collection kit. Now, I found this one from like 90s rock collection kit. And I just got to be honest with you, I wasn't into it. I, I wasn't about it. I wasn't excited about it. And for some of you, your picture of heaven is like a rock collection kit that you're just not that stoked on. And, and here's the interesting thing. If you tried to sell this rock collection now, you could probably get pennies for it. But I'll never forget that, that Christmas when my parents surprised me with the first generation iPhone. And I'm just telling you, you guys, this was a game-changing Christmas for me. I was so excited. I was anticipating this iPhone. It was so cool. It had just dropped. The world had never seen anything like this before. And I know all of you Android people out there, you just haven't like come, you haven't like gotten to that place in your relationship with God where you understand the iPhone's better. That's okay. We'll get you there later. But for me, I was like, man, the iPhone was so cool. I was so about it. And, and here's what's crazy is this first generation iPhone. There was an unused, unwrapped first generation iPhone that just sold on eBay for $190,000. You get Android for about seven bucks, but you get a brand new first generation iPhone for $190,000. It's had an even greater value than we thought. You see, heaven, heaven and eternity with Jesus and a relationship with Jesus now is far better than anything we could ever imagine. But I want to talk about one last big idea, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. Christ's sacrifice overcomes the sin we can't overcome. 
I remember at the last church that my wife Sarah and I served at, we had just gotten married and and we were beginning to serve in the youth ministry of this church. And one of the traditions at this church was the youth staff would put on an Easter sunrise service. How kind of them to allow the youth staff to wake up at three in the morning to begin setting up for a 6 a.m. Easter sunrise service. It was a difficult morning to wake up for, but the risen Lord helped us get up. We had a great Easter. And as tradition went, we would all go out for breakfast together. And then by the time we got home around 11 a.m., we were absolutely wiped. And so my wife Sarah and I decided to take a nap. Now, we had just recently bought a new bed frame that we were going to install on our bed, but hadn't had time to do that yet. And so we had this bed frame leaned up against one of our, one of our walls. Well, while Sarah and I were asleep taking a nap, there was a pretty violent earthquake. And it was, so, it was so violent that it shook the bed frame against the wall and made this really, really loud noise. Now, I sleep like a bear, so I don't wake up for anything. But my wife is a really light sleeper. Sarah's a really light sleeper. And so, so she woke up and she was kind of frantic and she heard the bed frame banging against the wall. And, and so she was a little delirious and she woke me up and she looked me in the eyes and she said, come Lord Jesus. And I thought, it's Easter. Did he come? Is he here? It's like, like he's in this room. Are, you, are we going to heaven? What Did I miss it? What's going on? And then she, she literally said this. She said, did you see him? And I freaked out because I, two thoughts went through my head. Was Jesus in our bedroom and now he vanished? Like what's going on? Or was a burglar in our room and Sarah saw him and I didn't? And so I just picked up a t-ball bat that I had in our room and I went running around our apartment and I wasn't sure if I was going to hit Jesus or a burglar or I didn't know what was going to happen. But I laugh about that moment because here I am running around our apartment disoriented with a t-ball bat trying to face some unknown enemy. You see, I share that because oftentimes we are fighting an invisible enemy, Satan, and the temptations he brings our way. And if we're not careful, we're running around with a t-ball bat, completely unprepared to fight against the sin that honestly we can't even overcome without Jesus. So how do we overcome the temptations and the sin of our life. Well, that's where Hebrews wants to help land the plane. And so here's three things we need to win the war against sin. Number one, you need others. You need others. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The writer of Hebrews says you need to remember if you're going to combat sin, if you're going to overcome sin in the power of Christ, you need to start by remembering that there is a great cloud of witnesses of people who have faithfully followed Jesus. You see, you've probably experienced this in your life before, but if you're trying to get in shape, you want to surround yourself with other people who are trying to get in shape. If there's a goal that you have, you want to surround yourself with people who share that same goal. Maybe you're in a workplace and you're a part of a team that is really energetic and and effective and innovative, and you have seen how that has 
catalyze the whole team, maybe even the organization or company forward. Well, the same is true in our spiritual life with Christ. Faithfulness inspires faithfulness. So I want to ask you a question. Who's in your cloud? Who's in your cloud of witnesses? It's, it's not only past people who have come and gone that have faithfully followed Christ, which maybe you have some grandparents or, or a family member or a long lineage of people who have followed Jesus. Well, they're a part of your cloud of witnesses. But there is also a present cloud of witnesses. In the same way that when you walk outside, you can't miss the clouds in the sky. You should not be able to miss seeing the people that are surrounding you right now who are also loving Jesus, who are also trying to follow him, who are also encouraging you in your faith. Which is why I want to ask you a question. Are you in a life group right now? As I shared last Sunday, over 70% of the adults at Purpose Church are in a life group. If you're a part of the 30% that aren't in a life group, today is your day that changes. In fact, 2024 is your year to say, I'm going to get myself in relationships, in intentional groups, in a life group with other people who want to follow Jesus and who are trying to follow Jesus so that we can encourage each other so that we could help each other, so that we could confess our sins to each other, be prayed for and held accountable. Who are you serving with? Where are you serving here at Purpose Church? That group of people can be a great source of encouragement. Or maybe who are you watching this with? Who are you listening to this with? Who are you roommates with? When you come on a Sunday morning in person, who are you sitting next to? These are great people for you to say, this is part of my cloud of witnesses. Then the author says it's time to get rid of everything that's holding you back. What is it that's holding you back? Well, Hebrew says it's sin. Sin is the one word for all the things that are holding you back. Sin, in other words, is any thought, word, or action that dishonors God or dishonors others. Sin is any thought, word, or action that's disobedient to God and his word. Sin is any word, thought, or action that dethrones God as the Lord of your life and puts you in his place. And sin always ends in a dead end. Sin always destroys our relationships with each other and ultimately with God. Now, I want to have a real moment here for a second. What is it in your life that's leading you to sin? Is it your smartphone? Teenagers, maybe you're tuning in, maybe you're a teenager or a young adult and you recently got a smartphone or for the first time as a young adult, no one's monitoring your smartphone and, and you can't help but continue to go back to those pictures and those videos, those web pages that are dishonoring another person that are leading you far away from God. Maybe the things that you and your friends are sending each other, the, the games that you're playing, the, the way you're interacting on social media, the obsession that you have is driving you away from God. Could, could I just challenge all of us for a moment? If your smartphone or social media has become a weapon that Satan is using against you instead of a tool that God is using to advance his kingdom, then maybe it's time to give it up. Maybe it's time to put it on hold. Maybe it's time to get a dumb phone. Maybe it's time to reevaluate. Maybe it's a relationship in your life right now. Maybe you used to be so close to God, but ever since that person came into your life the last 
week, the last three months, the last six months or three years, you just haven't been close with God. That they've been slowly kind of pulling you away. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't love them. And I know God loves them. And I know God wants to reach them. But if that relationship is leading you to turn away from God, then maybe that's something that needs to be cut out. Maybe it's shady business deals. Maybe you've found a way in your company or in your position at work to make some extra money, but it's not ethical. It doesn't honor God. Maybe it's time to give that up. How are you spending your weekends? How about that habit that has become like an addiction? I guess I just want to say this. Get rid of it. It's not worth it. If it's pulling you away from God, it's not worth it. And then Hebrews reminds us of this powerful truth. That sin, it entangles us. It ties us up, which means that sin ties us up, but Jesus sets us free. These things that, that, that we become addicted to, that we cling to, these habitual sins in our life, they're tying us up. And Jesus is just going, I love you and I, I just want you to be free. I want you to be free. And then there's this, this closing thought. The writer says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, which begs the question, what's your race? In Acts, the author Luke quotes Paul in Acts chapter 20. Paul said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know what I love about the gospel is it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what kind of family you grew up in. It doesn't matter what zip code you live in. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter whether you work in the church or don't work in the church. Every one of us have the same race. It, it's just ran in different lanes. Every one of us has the same race. The race is to testify, to tell the people around us the good news of God's grace, to show it with our lives and with our words, no matter where we are. It's why I love our vision at Purpose Church. Our vision at Purpose Church is everyone, everywhere following Jesus. That's our vision as a church, as a corporate body of Christ, as a community, but it's also our individual visions. It's the vision that Jesus has for your individual life that he has for my individual life because it comes from the Great Commission. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Everyone, everywhere following Jesus. Is that the race you're running? Because that's the race God has set before you. Number two, if we're going to overcome the sins that we can't even overcome in Christ's power, if we're going to overcome them, number two, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Verse two, Hebrews 12, verse two. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, 
it's only possible to overcome the sin and the struggles of our lives when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. I can't overcome the sin of my life on my own and you can't either, but Jesus can. When we're fixed on him, when we're motivated by him, when we're empowered by him, that's when we'll begin to see transformation. You see, the truth is we can't transform our own lives. God transforms our lives as we obey his word. As we put our faith in him, like we demonstrated at the beginning with the rope, as we trust him, he transforms our lives. And Christianity isn't easy. Sometimes following Jesus isn't easy, but it's the most important thing for us to do. There's a, a student in our high school ministry named Abby Atwood, and I saw her use her social media to say a pretty challenging message that convicted me, and I just wanted to share it with all of us. Abby Atwood, she said this, the do what makes you happy culture is so toxic for Christians. We are not called to do what makes us happy. We're called to do what glorifies God. Christianity isn't always sunshine and happiness. It's hard work and dedication to him, not us. Do what glorifies God. Dang, Abby Atwood, preach, girl. I mean, that's a good word for all of us. And then the writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And part of that joy was being reunited with the Father and being in heaven preparing a place for us. But another part of that joy was that Jesus had a bigger purpose than his own comfort. Jesus had a bigger purpose than his own comfort. Jesus' purpose was the gospel, the good news, the salvation of the world. In other words, Jesus teaches us something here that if you want to have true joy, you must connect everything you do to the gospel. That even the hard parts of life, enduring the scorn, the challenges, the difficult parts of our life, we can experience joy in those areas of our lives if we will connect them to the gospel. And maybe you're going, Eric, that sounds crazy. I don't understand that. Let me give you a few examples. Maybe you're parenting right now. And there are hard days when you're a parent. You have all these ideas. In fact, everybody's a perfect parent until you have kids, right? Everybody thinks they know exactly how to parent until you have kids. And there are challenging, tough days in parenting. And there are a lot of moments where, where you just want to give up because you're banging your head against the wall and you don't know how to do it. But maybe you could have joy in those moments if you reminded yourself that you can only parent this child in the power of the gospel. That parenting this child is an opportunity to experience the gospel. That in the same way Jesus Christ sacrificed himself and chose to love you, parenting is an opportunity to sacrifice and to love your children. Parenting is an opportunity to demonstrate to your child the good news of the gospel, to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to lean on the power of Jesus to get you through difficult parenting moments. Or maybe you're married. And here's the thing. 
Marriage is awesome, but it's not easy. And anyone who thinks that marriage is just an endless stream of happiness ain't married yet. And I don't know that for experience. My wife's perfect, but, but she knows that because I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm, I'm a hard person to be married to. I mean, Sarah, she's, she's got to live with me. But how do you get through tough seasons in a marriage? Remind yourself of the gospel. What did Jesus Christ do for you? He came and died, laid down his life for you. When a husband and a wife choose to die to themselves, to serve the other, when both people are doing that, it's amazing. It's incredible. And please don't don't hear me say that if you're being abused in your marriage or something else really significant is going on that you just continue and, and everything's okay and ignore that. No, no, no. You, you need to reach out for help and, and call us here at the church. Get therapy. Reach out to professionals. But I'm saying during those hard, difficult moments of marriage, reminding yourself of what Jesus has done for you might give you more joy when it's difficult because maybe through that difficult season, you might have the opportunity to experience an even deeper understanding of the gospel. Or maybe it's with the stuff in your life. Maybe it's things that you have, things that you're interested in, even friendships in your life. To keep in the, in the forefront of your mind that all of these things, God wants to use them for the gospel. They're not just for me. They're for his use. I think it'll give you joy because that's what the gospel does. Which is why I got to use this moment to just say we are heading into December. In fact, next Sunday is December 3rd and that begins Christmas with Purpose here at Purpose Church. And our worship center is going to be decorated, all Christmas themed. We got Christmas music. We're going to have baptisms. We're going to have photo booths. It's going to be amazing. But I want you to know that because we believe in the power of the gospel, every single Sunday in December is an invite Sunday. What do I mean by that? I mean we are asking you every single Sunday to come to Purpose Church and to bring someone with you. You've got people in your oikos, your sphere of influence, the 8 to 15 who, who don't know Jesus, but during December, they're feeling a little nostalgic. During December, they might be more open to the message of Jesus. Maybe they've gone through a really hard time and this is the first holiday season where they're experiencing grief. Whatever they're going through, this is a an opportunity to help connect them to the gospel, to connect them to the only source of hope, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I challenge you, every single Sunday in December, we have something amazing going on. We're going to share the gospel. We want to invite you to invite your friends. And then on December 10th, is our great joy for all Christmas concert. Oh, it is gonna be absolutely amazing. Our, our musical worship teams and our production teams are putting together an incredible experience. And we will also have a short gospel message where we are gonna give your friends an opportunity to receive Christ. And so I ask you, I invite you to bring somebody with you at the 10 a.m., come back at the 3 p.m., come back at the 5 p.m., bring people people with you to each one of these services who don't know Jesus so they can hear the reason for the season so they can discover what hope really looks like. 
And number three, if you want to win the war against sin, you need perspective. Our last verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews says, Jesus was perfect and even he experienced opposition. Even he faced criticism. Now you and I, we're not perfect. And there's times where we deserve criticism or, or we all need accountability, absolutely. But there's some of you who are experiencing unfair criticism. You're experiencing unfair opposition. And as I was preparing this sermon, I just felt like the Lord told me this and I don't know who this is for right now. But some of you, someone out there needs to hear this right now. The thing that God called you to, he has continued to call you to be faithful. That before the critics ever showed up, God called you. I want you to remember that, that before the opposition and before the criticism showed up that you're feeling right now, you need to go back in time and remember that God called you to do that. And I don't know what that is for you, but God has put a calling on your life. And every time God calls you to something, there will be opposition. There will be criticism. That does not mean you should turn back. That means you should persevere because God has still called you to it. And so I just want to encourage you in light of Hebrews, in light of putting your faith in Jesus, don't give up. Don't stop hoping. Don't stop praying because God hasn't stopped working. I'll close with this story. There's, there's a great story of the 19th century American evangelist and preacher, uh, D.L. Moody, who for most of his adult life, he carried around a piece of paper in his pocket with the names of a hundred people in his life who didn't know Jesus. And every day he would pray for each of these people by name, that they would come to faith in Christ, that they would give their lives to Jesus, that they would start to follow him. Well, by the time D.L. Moody passed away, 96 of the 100 people had surrendered their lives to Christ. When it came time for the funeral, those people and many more and the four who had not yet given their lives to Jesus, they all showed up to his funeral. And at the very end of that funeral, those remaining four people gave their lives to Christ. And so friends, don't give up. Put your faith in Jesus.